Amen. What a text. Let's pray together one more time. Ask for the Lord to bless us as we study His Word. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for this day. We thank You that we can gather together as Your people. Thank You for giving us the grace and the strength to make it the church. Understand, Lord, the struggle that goes into every Lord's Day as we battle through all sorts of trials and warfare. Just to make it here sometimes, Lord, is a, a grace in and of itself. And so we thank you, Lord. We, we ask for your, your uh, blessing now in our time, and we ask that you would give us sobriety as we think about this most uh, important uh, passage of Scripture, so profound, Lord, so incredibly complex, and yet so clear that there is coming a time where this world will be moved towards an inevitable end, where there will be a rise in Antichrist, there will be a rise in sin and lawlessness and wickedness, and at the same time, we have a glorious future as your people because we have a glorious promise. That in the midst of the darkness and in the midst of the evil that may transpire upon this world and in this world and upon this earth, Lord, the brightness of your coming is the dawning of the day of our vindication, the day of our redemption and our hope. All of our dreams will be realized as you return, as the Son of God comes and slays the evil one and redeems and rescues his people. Help us, O oh Lord, to put our hope there. Help us not to be shaken. Help us not to be unsettled by the things that we now hear and that we now see and the things that we perceive to be coming. Help us to be more uh, captivated and more focused and more just infused with the hope of your return than any of those things, Lord. Give us grace now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I had Brother uh, read all this uh, text before us because we're going to be here for quite some time. And so we're going to be looking at these passages for the foreseeable future. And uh, at the same time, uh, this is the whole context of what we're going to be studying in terms of of the doctrine of the Antichrist or the doctrine of the Anti-Lord, which I think is maybe even a better term for Antichrist because of what he initiates, but Antichrist is the biblical term uh, that is used. But nevertheless, we are uh, heading into a very dense uh, passage that deals with the doctrine of eschatology, and so for many, many years, many, many people have tried to squeeze many, many things out of me with regards to eschatology. And so here you will have uh, the ability to take full advantage uh, to know where I stand on a lot, of, a lot of these particular issues. A lot of these particular issues I don't know. I, I still am trying to wrestle and trying to figure out. They're, they're really difficult. Uh, for example, in verse uh, seven, who is the identity of the one who restrains, who will be removed out of the way? I don't know. 
GK Beale has about 10 views that are possible. Uh, this is one commentator that says uh, this is how many options there are on the table. Uh, that's tough. Uh, when you get into the precise nature of the activity of Satan through the Antichrist, what precisely are these false signs and wonders that will emerge upon the world scene? I don't know. Uh, I have some idea based on the book of Revelation, but I don't know exactly. Uh, these are the things that I'm still trying to work out myself. Uh, so there's just a lot of theology here that uh, demands a lot of our attention, and uh, I've been studying quite a bit. I have a big old stack on my desk right now uh, dealing specifically with Antichrist and eschatology and all of these things. And so we're gonna, but we're gonna move slowly through this and hopefully just try to think the thoughts of God after Him as we approach this text. Okay. And so the very first thing is that I want to approach this entire doctrine of Antichrist in relationship to the day of the Lord, because that's what we have in front of us. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 together. Let's read that one more time. It says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So that's sort of the introduction or the overall context that gave rise to Paul's need to deal with the subject of Antichrist. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to see that. When we think about biblical eschatology, Really, the Antichrist is kind of at the tip of the spear of all of it. It's kind of the very pinnacle of the eschatological events that will transpire in this world. I think sometimes that practically escapes us. I know it does for me. I don't tend to think oftentimes like all of the eschatology I read in Scripture, this is going to happen here. (laughs) I think I have a a challenge and really believing that, and, 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 and I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the controversy that has surrounded the subject of eschatology. I remember when I first became a believer, the only thing I wanted to know was, when is Jesus coming back? And so I sought out teachers and authors and theologians that I thought were going to give me the answer to that question, and so I got into all kinds of stuff. This is back in the late 90s, and so I had my fair share of Y2K books on my bookshelf, people that were telling me to go buy generators and a a stock food in my garage because Y2K, the year 2000, was going to reset all the computers and, you know, all of the nuclear bombs were going to go off and everything like that. Uh, Churches, even the church I was attending at the time, actually had generators for sale in the parking lot. Uh, they were like doomsday preppers on the Lord's Day. Every, instead of going to the bookstore that Sunday, you went to the parking lot and got your generator and your box of food. And Not a joke. Uh, totally serious. That really happened. But eschatology is a fascinating subject, isn't it? It's fascinating because it tells us how the world is going to end. And it tells us that matter of fact... 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 11 tells us that God one day is going to blow this whole world up and He's going to start over. 
Uh, however, what, however that looks, because even that is a big controversy, is God going to, uh, in a sense, annihilate the existing universe, uh, in a sense that every particle down to the molecule will be annihilated out of existence, and he's going to start completely all over again? Or, as us- usually a more historical, even reformed position, that the earth will not be essentially annihilated out of existence as much as it will be renewed. I think there's a lot of weight behind that sentiment. But uh, eschatology uh, is, is really fascinating, and it leads to no shortage of controversies and conspiracies and superstitions in terms of doctrines uh, that come with a study of the end times. Uh, somewhere around the 19th century arose the doctrine of dispensationalism, which gave rise to the hermeneutic that is known as the historical, grammatical, literal interpretation of the Bible, which uh, went so far as to stipulate that even the apocalyptic genres of Scripture were to be interpreted literally. And so you have no shortage of books that try to identify the imagery of Revelation where, uh, you know, uh, uh, John sees something coming up out of the earth, and it has, you know, looks like a uh, like a locust, and it's got a face of a, of a man, and and all of this, and people are trying to identify that with Apache Apache helicopters, and saying that that's what John saw. He was just trying to describe it. He didn't know how else to describe it. But is um, is uh, John looking at stealth bombers, or or something else? Uh, you know, um, uh, I'm not teaching Revelation, so I'm not going to tell you. I think it's something else. I think it's what Ezekiel was talking about and the prophets were talking about. But, but, but dispensationalism is very important because we kind of live in a generation that is still uh, full of dispensational thought. I am not a dispensationalist, uh, not anymore. Uh, I don't believe, for example, in a pre-tribulational rapture that states that prior to uh, the emergence of the great tribulation and the revelation of the Antichrist, that there will be a secret rapture of the church, that the r- church will essentially disappear. And that's where you have things like Late Great Planet Earth and Thief in the Night and uh, the, the movies back in the 70s that, that depicted, you know, uh, the vanishing of people and the clothes fall on the ground and airplanes fall out of the sky because the Christian pilot got raptured and so the plane crashed. You know, that kind of uh, sci-fi kind of thing. Uh, I don't think so. I think the rapture, if we want to call it a rapture, a catching up, the word rapture not being in the, in the, uh, in the Greek text, but uh, the idea of being caught up together with Christ in the clouds is certainly taught in the Bible. Uh, that's clearly taught there in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse uh, 16 and 17, but I think it's simultaneous with the second coming, that great parousia event that will end the world and will end the reign of Antichrist, as we're going to see here. But dispensationalism is important, and let me tell you something about dispensationalism, as long as we're talking about eschatological views. Dispensationalism actually did something really good in the church, capital C in the church, because dispensationalism arose out of the wasteland and out of the ashes of liberalism. The liberalism of the 18th and 19th centuries, really, uh, and even into the 20th century, uh, taught that Scripture was essentially an existential experience. Uh, They taught that the literalism of Scripture was unfounded because we could never connect faith with fact or faith with history. 
And so historical events were not important so long as you maintained some sort of personal devotion by faith to whatever the principle lied behind those unknown historical events. Whether they happened or not, we don't know. And so liberals, especially uh, in Germany, uh, liberals like Boltmann and others ended up going so far to detach Christianity from historic, uh, historicity of the Bible that they no longer believed in like a literal resurrection or something like that. Uh, that's how bad it got. Well, um, enter in dispensationalism, uh, uh, John Darby, the Schofield Bible, all of that, uh, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, which founded Dallas Theological Seminary right here in our backyard. Uh, and out of those men came a literal reading of the Bible. And they said, no, the Bible is a literal text. We have to take everything it says literal. Well, I agree that we need to take everything historical and grammatical, but I do not agree that we are to take everything literal because, like I said, even the apocalyptic genre of Scripture was literalized. And so Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 is talking about a literal temple. Uh, also in Revelation uh, there will be literal sacrifices going on in the millennium. There will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, even if that means that Christ, when he returns to establish a literal thousand-year reign on this literal earth, even if that means that they will literally be, that this world will literally be a sin-filled, death-plagued, satanically unified world, even in the presence of a glorified Christ. Uh, I don't subscribe to that um, because what that means, it's almost like a recapitulation of the entire course of redemption has to happen all over again. But if dispensationalists are correct, then what we are told to believe is that one day Christ is going to return, but when he returns, he will establish a kingdom, such an intermittent kingdom before the eternal state, that there will still be the presence of sin, there will still be the presence of death, and there will still be Satan to deal with. And, uh, and further than that, uh, the world will once again be brought into a configuration of a unified front, satanically led against Christ once again. So it's almost like Armageddon was not enough. Now we need Gog and Magog, another end-time battle to end the world all over again. So I think uh, the dispensationalists on things like that got it wrong. Don't think, though, that eschatological error is associated with the dispensational branch of the church only. No, it's not. Reform, the Reformed Church also made their uh, mistakes as far as eschatology and, ironically enough, specifically dealing with the doctrine of Antichrist. The Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, both, uh, and other uh, reform documents, both uh, uh, identify, for example, the Pope of Rome during the Reformation, that the Pope of Rome was not an Antichrist, but he was the Antichrist. Let me read to you the London Baptist. This is what it says. Neither the Pope of Rome in any sense will be the head thereof, talking of being the head of the church. But the Pope is that Antichrist, that man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And then they cite 2 Thessalonians 2 as proof that the Pope during their time was the fulfillment of the son of perdition in Thessalonians. Now, surely they are wrong. 
Uh, Kim Riddlebogger, in his book, The Man of Sin, says that Paul's reference here in Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, is not referring to the papacy, since Paul is not referring to a series of individuals who will come and go like an institution, but to a particular individual who is destroyed by Christ at his second advent. I agree with that. I don't think it's either the Pope in Rome or the seat of the Pope or a series of of people in an institution. No, no, no. I I do believe that the man of sin will be an end-time figure, a a real person with a real face and a real name and who will be, as uh, Kim says here and the text says here, who will be destroyed by Jesus at the second advent. And so a lot of the eschatology of this chapter awaits us because in front of us today is a much more uh, practical uh, sort of context. And so that's what I want to look at today, verses 1 and 2. Sort of what is the context that gave rise to the apostles' teaching on the end times, the day of the Lord, the Antichrist, all of that. And in a sense, the context is very clear. And so first, let's deal with the context. Why does the Apostle Paul feel the need to dive into a dissertation both on the disclosure and on the destruction of Antichrist? It's because apparently there was a heretical influence in the church. That's what he's talking about when he says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure and disturbed by a spirit, a message, or a letter. And then here's the key, as if from us. So there is some sort of... um, uh, fraudulent forgery, uh, fraudulent imposters that are pretending to be apostolic in their teaching, but in fact, they are not. You understand, if you turn back with me, go back to the first letter, chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're going to actually be there quite a bit because that's where Paul goes. But this entire discourse on the day of the Lord and eschatology arose out of a very practical matter. And that began by people being frightened that those who had died in the Lord, um, they they were sort of subjected to some sort of unknown future. They didn't know what was going to happen, let's say, to their deceased loved ones who had died and had not been alive for the return of Christ. Then what? Right? Because, and that shows you a couple of things. That shows you, number one, that the church at the time of the first century absolutely believed that they were living at the end of the age, that Jesus Christ could return very quickly. And we don't know how all the details will be fulfilled. We just know of His promise, the promise of His coming. We know that in the book of Acts, the angels even say that just as you saw Jesus go up into the clouds, into heaven, in like manner, He he will return back to you, right? So they were expecting that that return was imminent in a sense. Uh, That's really profound, Uh, And so they had the fear of, what if this day takes place and we're not ready? What about our loved ones? And so the Apostle Paul comforts them with that. Matter of fact, he had taught them on eschatology so much that Paul goes so far, look at chapter 5, verse 1, to tell them that they don't need any more information on this. (laughs) That's remarkable. I try to wrap my my brain around, how is it possible that Paul tells them, you don't need any more information on this? (laughs) It's like... I need more information on this. He says, Now as to the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just as a thief in the night. Now, remember, in the context, in verses 3 and 4 and 5, he goes on to talk about the fact that the day of the Lord is only a thief in the night. 
for those who are not spiritually prepared. You see what I'm saying? So it is a thief in the night to you if you are not spiritually fit for that day. Then it will come upon you like a thief. But he's, what, what does he say? But the antithesis of that for you, it's not that the, the day of the Lord is not going to come upon you as a thief because you are of the day. You are sons of the, of the light. You are not of the night. And you are not of the darkness. In other words, you are in the sphere of salvation, not in the sphere of sin and condemnation. And in the sphere of salvation, you have nothing to fear because the day of the Lord is a day of promise, a day of blessing. And so the present situation came about because there was a need to comfort the church concerning the coming of Christ, the parousia. Matter of fact, go back to Thessalonians 2 and 2 Thess 2 because that's what he says. He says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to what? To the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. And what's his request? Do not be shaken. Be certain today there is as much confusion about the second coming of Christ as there was in Paul's day. I mean, today we debate whether it's going to be pre, mid, or post-tribulational, whether it's going to be pre or post-millennial, and when is that going to happen? Is it going to happen in the middle of the tribulation period? And what's that going to happen? Is it going to be instantaneous? Is it going to be a time event? Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of debate surrounding that. Matter of fact, uh, going back to that text, where it says are gathering together to him dispensational theologians, including some of my favorite, like John MacArthur, what they would say is that the word coming there, you see the word coming there in verse 1? That's a really important word, you guys. The Greek word is parousia. You've heard me use it over and over again. And that's what the theologians latch onto because that parousia word is a reference to the second coming. Uh, but uh, some who hold to a pre-tribulational second coming, and not really a second coming, like a partial coming, what they would say is that this verse, verse 1, is actually speaking about the secret rapture of the church. And that's what Paul is meaning to say here. The problem with that is that just a little bit further down in the context, in verse 8, he uses the same exact word again to describe not a secret rapture, but the, the, the absolute emphatic return of Christ. Look at what it says. It says, speaking of the Antichrist, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his parousia, his coming. And so you kind of have an arbitrary notion here where the coming of Christ in this verse, verse 8, is talking about the second coming, and the coming of Christ in verse 1 is talking about the secret rapture. I don't know how you make that sort of arbitrary leap. Uh, I don't. And to my, uh, uh, from my perspective, you know, uh, I have what I believe to be the best scholarship on Thessalonians. I have all the best commentaries, and I can't find other than a very small segment of, of commentators that are from this perspective, this dispensational perspective, but everybody else, uh, the exegetes, all the big ones, you know, like, uh, uh, who are the big ones? Like uh, 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 Wyma, um, uh, Gene Green, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, uh, William Hendrickson, you know, a lot of these men, uh, Calvin, you know, a lot of these men, they all say verse 1 is referring to the second coming just like it is in verse 8. There's no distinction here. And so to make some arbitrary distinction I think is unfounded. 
Um, but despite whatever our position is on this text, I think we should be sympathetic uh, with those with whom we disagree because it is complex. It is, you know, I don't think like this is a fellowship issue. I don't think if you have a different eschatology that you should break fellowship or not be associated. I, you know, some people online get real mean about this stuff. That's not me. Uh, I go to the Shepherds Conference. You know what I mean? I love John MacArthur. I use his comment every, I mean, John MacArthur in Thessalonians has been extremely helpful to me uh, so far in the exposition, up until this point, right? No. <laughs> but, but, but you get what I'm saying. There's an array of views, there's an array of positions here, but Paul, in the context, this entire dissertation on the day of the Lord arose out of a need to clarify the parousia, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in terms of the comfort that Paul supplies, and that's kind of the context. The context is the church needs to be informed precisely because there are false teachers that have infused the church with some sort of confusing teaching needing greater clarification. And at the same time, we understand that this too, ironically, is the work of Antichrist. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. This is a principle I think that we need to that we need to grasp is that even before Antichrist is on the scene, even before Antichrist makes his appearance and is revealed by God as to who he will be, in a sense, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. Uh, it's already at work according to John and according to Paul but, uh, and Jesus, of course. But, um, but according to 1 John chapter 4, we already have, in a sense, a principle of Antichrist that is operative in our time. Why? Because he is operative any time there's false teaching. That's amazing. False teaching, brothers and sisters, is not something that we simply uh, uh, refute. It's not something that we laugh at. It's not something that we just mock. It's not something that we just tolerate. According to the Bible, it is demonically energized. That's remarkable because... You know, when you're confronted with false teachers and you're put on your heels, you ever been shaken by a false teacher? I have. I remember as a young Christian, I mean, I just became a Christian maybe a year's worth of time. And I thought I knew, you know, I thought I was growing. I thought I knew what I was talking about. I tell you the story. I got a knock at the door. A guy came to my door and opened the door to, to a, a lady and a guy, one guy's in a suit. And, of course, uh, he tells me, hey, how you doing, blah, 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 this and that. And I was like, okay, I think I know who this is. This is one of those Jehovah Witnesses guys. He's not a Mormon because they're not 16, but he's. <laughs> but I think he's a Jehovah Witness. And sure enough, he was a Jehovah Witness. And I thought, okay, I know, what's, I know exactly what I'm going to tell this guy. And I told him, I said, you know, I said, I understand what you're talking about. I said, but my pastor's Chuck Smith. And he said, yeah, he was my pastor for 30 years. And I was like, <gasps> it was like, you know, one of those like a movie moment, you know, it's just like, I didn't know, it's so like, he just trumped my trump card, you know, like, I got nothing left. If I can't use Chuck, you know, as the authority here, what am I going to do? And it turned out that this guy had a very young Christian in front of him, and he just proceeded to make mincemeat out of me, because I didn't know anything at this point. I could barely read, let alone uh, no apologetics or anything like that, and he just proceeded to just unleash all of this heresy on me, that was a demonic event. That man was an, a, an agent of Antichrist. He was satanically energized. And in the sense of all of his thoughts and his worldview came from the evil one. That's what John says here. Look with me. 
Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are of God. Why do we say, why is he saying spirit? Uh, That's interesting, isn't it? It's just another way of speaking of some sort of prophetic messenger. And you know that because he says next, because many false prophets. So we're not talking about spirits or demons flying around and coming to your door. We're talking about real people, false teachers, false prophets who are called spirits who have gone out into the world. And then look at what he says. By this you know where it is... uh, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, there's two things that are really important there. Number one, the idea that Jesus came in the flesh, that, that tells us that what John the Apostle was talking about in the late first century to the churches of Asia were, was referring to what has come to be known as docetism. This concept that Jesus appeared to be in the flesh, but really wasn't. He was more of like a spirit being. He wasn't really in the flesh. Why? Well, because Docetism emerged out of Gnosticism. And the Gnostic worldview uh, asserted that the flesh was inherently evil. Uh, So it cannot be that the divine in any way is going to take part of sinful, fallen, corrupted flesh. And so it only appears that he came in the flesh, but he actually didn't come. And this is what... As uh, a matter of fact, the whole letter starts with a refutation of Gnosticism and Docetism when he says what we have heard, what we have seen, what, what, what we have handled, what we have touched, making it very clear, right, that Jesus was heard and seen and touched uh, by these uh, eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is, watch this, the spirit of Antichrist. Now, To be fair, the word spirit is actually not in the Greek text. It's actually, uh, the the article here is actually standing in the place of the antecedent spirit going back to verse 3 at the beginning, every spirit. And so here it just uses a Greek article, the. So what uh, some people call a pronominal use of the article, like a pronoun use of the article. But anyway, that's what's meant. It's meant, and uh, one commentator actually uh, uh, Smalley in his word biblical commentary, he actually says, and I like this because he said, on purpose, John did not say spirit, pneuma, on purpose. Because he doesn't want his people going around thinking, just like God has a spirit, Antichrist has a spirit too, right? Putting them in some sort of parallel you know, categories. No, 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 no. It's a, it's, it's a spirit of Antichrist on a different level. It's a principle of Antichrist that is a work her, uh, through the heresy of these p- false teachers. He says, which, but notice what he says in terms of Antichristu. He says, which you have heard that it is coming. And now, well, that's a translation, but that, and now is already in the world. So I take this to mean that Antichrist is coming, but even now the principle of Antichrist is already operative in the world. That's what, that's what I'm saying. G.K. Beale gives a really fascinating illustration when he says it's kind of like the alien movie or something that you've seen. It's kind of like there's an alien entity, but around the corner as he's chasing someone comes these tentacles, Right? And he's kind of trying to grab, you know, it's, and, but you haven't seen the alien yet, but you see the tentacles coming out, right? It's kind of like that. It's like through heresy and through false teaching and through, I would even say, through the fallen 
world system that we see down to the state, we see the tentacles coming of Antichrist, but we have not yet seen the grand enchilada himself. And that's coming. Uh, that's kind of what he's saying. I know he wouldn't have used the word enchilada, but you know what I mean. Again, coming back to the practical point of the text, brothers and sisters, I just want to comfort us because there's a lot of discomforting things, uh, not only in terms of the heresy that can be inflicted upon the doctrine of, ant- of Antichrist and eschatology, but just even in our own world. Are you, are you guys paying attention to what's going on in the world? Um, I, where's Chris Matthews? He, he made fun of me because he said, you've got to stop talking about 5G. I can't because I'm going to talk about it today. And here's why. I saw a medical expert. No, this blew my mind. I saw a medical expert that spoke to Congress and gave a testimony. This woman has prolific credentials, right? And what she went up to Congress and said that according to all the medical journals right now, um, the type of radiation I know that we're getting from our cell phones and from our cell towers and that's going to be multiplied hundredfold through 5G technology, she says, absolutely is causing cancer. There is no, uh, there is no uh, uh, mystery there. It is conclusive. It is destroying our DNA and our cells down to our molecular structure. We are being compromised. And he says uh, all of these radio waves and frequency waves and all these, he says it's like sandwiches just being layered on top of us, and it's going to compound. And he says, and now we're going into 5G technology with hundredfold faster and stronger and more powerful uh, radio waves that are coming. She's like, what are we doing? So she's sitting there pleading with con- Congress as a leading scientist and leading uh, 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 doctor in her medical field where she deals specifically with these kinds of things and telling them, we are poisoning our society. Like, there is no question about that. Uh, she gave detailed evidence about how if you live uh, near a cell tower, uh, you are at much greater risk of getting cancer than the people that are further away. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was terrifying. And I thought, all oh, these terrifying things. You know, Trish is like, we've got to move out to the country. You know, I'm just like, and I found, I was like, we're not moving out to the country. You know why? Because I found another article of a space program, and I'm not kidding you. Elon Musk, his next ambition, did you hear what it is? He wants to launch a series of satellites in the outer space that will blanket the world with 5G network. So there is no escaping it, Trish. We're not going anywhere. We're at Heritage Grace. It's a lot to be scared about. I understand that. I am. I don't like the thought of all that. I don't like the thought of my daughter being bombarded by radio frequency waves that are probably going to give her cancer and, you know, and all this stuff. But it's like, welcome to a fallen world. You know, what would you rather have? You want to go be translated back into the time of the first century? You want to go back to the Thessalonian church? You know what's happening? We already talked about what's happening there. People are going to church. Jason's church was raided. They grabbed people, beat people, and threw them into custody. You want to go back to that situation? It's like, take your poison. We, no matter what, the church is going to suffer in the present age. But the church is going to be comforted all along the way, too. Follow with me quickly in your Bibles. I want to I show you how that, that the eschaton is not, is not meant to pile on anxiety and distress for the church, but it's meant to do the complete opposite. It's not there for our gloom. It's there for our joy. It's for our triumph. It's not for our defeat. It's for our glory. It's not for our demise. It's for... Our salvation, not for our perdition. 
So turn with me quickly to 1 Thess 4.17, and I'm going to read you all the comforting texts related to eschatology. This is, brothers and sisters, this is the reason the Thessalonian letters were written. It was not written primarily to give us timelines in terms of rapture and, you know, tribulation and second advent and it's not given primarily to even to give us detailed, uh, you know, uh, information on Antichrist. It is given primarily to comfort the church and to encourage us. I know that somewhere along the line we have turned eschatology into a point of debate and controversy and, uh, and, and, and endless sort of infighting in the church and division. Division. Um, I, mean, I know of a church that was recently significantly divided on eschatology, uh, where multiple families left this church because somebody in that church rose up, began teaching a contrary eschatology, and swept everybody out of that church. That's awful. That's terrible. That's not what eschatology is for. Uh, it's for comfort. And so 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, that is the saints that have died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. Brethren, you are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. See, so don't fear a thief. You know, thieves are, have you ever seen video of a home invasion? Scary. And the judgment will come like that. It will invade people's lives and world and it will overtake them. And they will not be spiritually ready. They will be the foolish virgins that have no oil. They will be unfit for the kingdom when it comes. But we are not. We are sons of light, sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober, encouraging sobriety and vigilance. Verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you all are also doing. Question for you today. Question of examination. When was the last time that you built each other up through eschatology? Huh? No. Usually it's we tear each other down or we just confuse the daylights out of each other. Right? Instead of encouraging with an eschatological thrust to encourage one another because of our the, the, the certainty uh, the surety of our eschatological hope, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 23 of this chapter. It says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ, His coming. That's what it's for, sanctification. Now turn over to chapter 2. Uh, excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, kind of even beyond our context here. Look at what Paul says here. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you. This is 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And he says, brethren, beloved of God, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. What's the point? The point is you don't have anything to fear an election is a point that should comfort you in that. That you have not been appointed under wrath. You have not been appointed unto judgment. But you have been chosen for the very beginning for the expressed purpose of being 
saved. Look at verse 16. Now may, the, may, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. May he comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. In other words, our words should be full of hope and joy and comfort and grace. Our deeds ought to be full of zeal and love, not a hopeless despair. That's the whole point. Now, let me just touch on, because we looked a little bit at the context of what gave rise to the teaching of the day of the Lord and any Christ. We looked a little bit at the comfort that is afforded to us here. But let's look a little bit deeper into the confusion that is being caused here. Because of the words that he says, don't be shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, or we could say has already come. That's a possible translation. Possible. Now, I want to emphasize a couple things here, mainly that the Antichrist has means to accomplish his sinister ends. And really, in one sense here, we are being given both the, the, uh, the method, the error and the remedy regarding this present distress. The method, we've already talked about it, is pretty clear. Antichrist works through heretics and heresy. And so there are teachers and there are teachings and there are traitors to Christ who do this who propagate these lies. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Maybe I can just read it for us. And 2 Corinthians 11. But look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were also be false teachers among you. It's almost like guaranteed because of the age in which we live. We will never rid ourselves of false teachers. One apologist famously said, If it wasn't for the Christian cults, We'd have half the nation converted by now. <laughs> I understand what he's saying. What he's saying is that, you know, after the Restoration Movement and then the, all the cults that emerged from that time period, uh, you know, the Mormons, the Church of Christ, the, 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 uh, the Christian Science, you know, uh, uh, Jehovah Witness, Watchtower Society, all of those Christian cults that were, that were born and bred during the Restoration Movement, man, they did a number on this nation. Uh, they did a number on this nation. It's unbelievable. But uh, we are assured that false teachers will come and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing uh, swift destruction upon themselves. I know you Calvinists out there probably want me to talk about that verse. I'm not going to. Uh, but verse, that's an inside joke maybe for some of you. 2 Corinthians 11, much to the same thing. Paul says in verse 13, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ, excuse me, uh, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Oh, look at that. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, 
whose end will be according to their deeds. Wow, what a prolific passage that is on the methods that are used to confound and confuse the church. And these Antichrist agents, they proliferate their heresy through teaching, whether it's formal teaching in, uh, in, 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 their, in their false churches, in their false places of worship, and also in their writings, because that's what the Apostle Paul says, that they also engage in false letters. And so they use all sorts of techniques to uh, pawn themselves off as the real thing. Consequently, the third point is this, is that there are also imposters, traitors, if you would, of the truth, because that's the way Satan has always worked. Satan always works as an imposter. Notice, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, he didn't approach Eve and say, there is no God, you may eat of the tree. That's not what he said. Instead, he used a much more subtle, I think, a more, uh, sadly to say, but a more uh, effective technique. That was not to say there is no God, but that's to say that has God really said. So if false teachers, notice the vast majority of humanity, brothers and sisters, is comprised of, of, of three major pagan religions, right? You have Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. And we're talking about billions of people there. It's not atheists that are deceiving the world. It's Satan through false teaching and false religion that is deceiving the world. That's always what he has done. It's, it's almost like he knows that man in the, 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 his inner conscience... He knows that by virtue of man being created in the image of God, he has a conscience that testifies to him, according to Romans chapter 1, that there is a God and that he is powerful and that, he is, and that they are accountable to him. But what natural theology does not teach you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's almost like Satan picks up where natural theology leaves off and he begins to bring you his own heretical form of supernatural theology or supernatural revelation. That's what he's always done. Isn't that fascinating? Satan is really brilliant. He's not dumb. We'll see this uh, in Sunday school, Lord willing, as we look at the temptation of Christ. Satan knows exactly what to say. He knows more about the Bible than you do. Uh, He knows exactly how to phrase things and put things and suggest things. And it's just, he's that roaring lion. You know, roaring lion is a brilliant hunter. He stalks his prey carefully. He doesn't make too much noise at the wrong time. He knows precisely when and how he can get his prey. And that's what Satan really does. The error of the confusion, of course, was an over-realized eschatology. That's the next point. So we got the, the method of the confusion. We have the error of the confusion. And last of all, we'll talk about the remedy of the confusion, as it were. But the error of the confusion is a probably an over-realized eschatology because of the words where he says, don't be, don't be disturbed to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Two potential interpretations there based on the Greek verb that is used here, anastekin. Now, anastekin can either mean something that has already come or something that is imminent and is impending. And so uh, commentators kind of struggle. Are the false teachers saying that the day of the Lord can happen at any moment? So it's almost like creating a spiritual paranoia in the church. Like, wow, you know, like we could miss this. It can come in, in one second. 
Is that the interpretation? Or what he's saying is that it has already come, and if, and if the, the language here is meant to convey the notion that the day of the Lord has already happened, then what these false teachers were probably doing is they were uh, teaching some sort of spiritual advent of Christ. In other words, they were teaching some sort of invisible, mystical, spiritualized, overly spiritualized return of Christ. And that was heretical, almost like Christ came already invisibly. It's a principle that took place. It's not actually going to happen. You know what's really remarkable about that is that many uh, theological liberals actually embrace that exact thing. They deny a literal, physical, historical resurrection, and they actually end up embracing the concept that the return of Christ is kind of a parable. It's like something you believe in and hope in and put, and the, the, the beauty of that hope is what changes you into a beautiful person. You know, that's just Satan. That's Satan talking. No, Jesus has not come invisibly, mystically, spiritually yet, not in terms of the parousia, and the return of Christ, according to Paul, is not in this scary, eminent fashion because, to go a little bit ahead of ourselves here, guys, and kind of peek into the the, the, the context that's coming because at least two signs are coming. Number one, a great apostasy is coming. Number two, the revelation of the man of sin is coming. And until that happens, Christ will not return to destroy the Antichrist and to end the world. Uh, and so this idea of an any-moment eminence uh, was maybe unfounded in the theology of the Apostle Paul. It's not that Christ can't return at any time, but his return will be inaugurated by at least these two uh, absolutely undeniable signs that are going to take place. And so this is what Paul wants to warn them about. But here's the thing. Whatever is going on here, and hopefully we'll work meticulously through this text to try to figure it out whether it is an overrealized eschatology or whether it is an overheated eschatology. By the way, an overheated eschatology, I think that's my term, I coined it, okay? It's overheated in the sense that, like in 1 Corinthians, um, they also suspect that an overheated eschatology was being taught there to the degree that people were concluding, we don't even need to get married. Why work? Why get married? Why start a family if Christ can return any moment? Let's just, you know, get up on the roof and wait. No, that's, that's overheated eschatology. We are to occupy. We are to, we are to obey the commands of God and live our lives and, 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 and do what God calls us to do vocationally and, and, and the rest and, and, and worry about the time. What did, what did Jesus tell the apostles there in Acts chapter 1? The, the, the times and the epics are something that God has in His authority. It's not for you to know. Don't worry about that. You just do what I'm telling you to do. I'm telling you to go evangelize the world. Don't sit on your roof waiting for the rapture. That's not the right response. What's the remedy? Very practically, I want to say the remedy to the confusion because in verse 13 we have that. Let, excuse me, verse 3. So I'm going to jump a little bit ahead. Chapter 2, verse 3, we end here. What's the remedy to the confusion that was going on in Thessalonica? He says, let no one, watch this now, very specific language. Let no one in any way deceive you. You know discernment is very unpopular in the church today. What do I mean? Well, you guys have probably gotten a 
a taste of this. You go to your typical evangelical church today, you know what pastors want out of their people? Probably the opposite that I want. Uh, they don't want a people that are theologically sharp, that are apologetically discerning. They're not, they don't want people who are theologically critical. They don't want people that are striving for real holiness. They don't want people like that. They just want people to come in, do your thing, sing your songs, tithe your money, and then, you know, occupy your kids, and then go home. God bless you. That's it. But don't get into, like, you know, approaching the pastor after the sermon and say, hey, you know, pastor, you know, what you said there today, you know, I don't know. Have you, have you looked at the original context of the Greek text or the Hebrew text on it? Oh, son, you need to calm down a little bit. Have has anybody testified to that? I can. <laughs> Chris Best. Knew you would raise your hand. For some reason, just knew you would raise your hand. It's everywhere, that kind of discernment. Our culture, in a weird, postmodern kind of way, is a culture that encourages a non-discerning humanity, right? Uh, just kind of, let's just embrace it. Pluralism tells us, just kind of embrace everything. Don't get too critical. You know, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Don't try to be dogmatic about anything. Don't judge anybody, that language of not judging. Sort of, what does that translate into? That trans- translates into a bunch of jellyfish at the end of the day. No backbone, no spine. People with no conviction, I would say, <laughs> that's exactly where the world wants people to be. No conviction, no courage, no backbone, nothing. Now we can shape and mold you like Plato in anything we want, right? But that's the opposite of what Paul says. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Uh, I tell people, you know, the most important thing of all is your spiritual discernment for yourself and for your family. Especially, you know, dad's head of the home talking to you because... You're tasked as the prophet, priest, and king of your home to guard your home, to guard your family, to, to shepherd and to wash your, your, your wife and to shepherd your children and to shepherd your house and to guard them. What influences their soul and their mind? What goes in there? What do they look at? You know, it's like right now, Eden already, oh, she's already like, she knows how to use the iPad better than I do. <laughs> I'm like, what? How did this happen? I'm not kidding you. Terrified. So we limit what she can do. We limit what, you know, she's watching, uh, uh, you know, videos on, on worship and videos on how to brush your teeth. I've got all the songs in my head. You don't know. I dream about these songs. It's unbelievable. Well, we have to really monitor what she said. I mean, think, I was thinking about this the other day when I guess that 5G conversation came up. You can have a school bus full of children down to the earliest ages in elementary school, they all have an iPhone in their pocket. They are one click away from unspeakable evil. How in the world did we get to that? We're there. I was listening to this lady, a conservative lady, talking about how she was terrified for her children because what she found was that her kids with the children's games and children's apps on the phone that she lets them use and lets them see that the ads that are popping up in those children's games are vile. She even found ads on children's uh, games that were teaching you how to hurt yourself. I'm talking, we're living in an antichrist world. If that is not just, but that's where we're at. And Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you. 
What's the best way for you to do that? Two ways. Number one, be a student of the Bible. Give yourself to serious Bible study. Don't play around with the Bible. The Bible is not for our leisure. The Bible is our what? Our sword. It is the sword of the Spirit. It is our weapon of warfare. And so we need to approach this book like our life depends on it because it does. And the second thing is, is your life in the church. If you are not in the God-ordained covering and institution that he has graciously given to his people for protection and for discernment and for guidance and for accountability, then you are outside of the blessing of God in that. And you are exposed and you are susceptible. Why is it that I find people who blow into this church who visit our church, and they've visited like five, ten churches already, and they're looking. How long have you been looking? Well, I've been looking for like three years. You don't have a church yet? You're not a member yet? Where, what are you doing for the last three years? I mean, really? And you know what? A lot of those people come with all this baggage. I had this gentleman that came one week. He came, came up to me. The first thing he says, we're new. We're looking for a church. The last church, I had a big old fight with the pastors and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you said that almost like you were proud of that. You know what I mean? I'd be like hanging my head low. You know, and sure enough, while I was preaching, I must have said something. He got up, took his whole family, left. It's like, why is it always like that for these individuals? Oh, the church is a place of safety. The church is where you want to do your theology. The church is when you, hey, brother, hey, sister, have you seen this? Are you looking at this? Hey, I want to ask you something. You know, what do you think of this? I've been looking into this. You see what I'm saying? Uh, Just last week, I was approached in our church by a couple who had dinner with someone and in that dinner, they attempted to foist this heretical theology upon this brother and sister and try to, like, you know, pressure them into listening to this theology. It's just whacked out stuff about, you know, Bible codes and all this stuff. It's like, that's what I'm talking about. It can come at any moment. It can come at any... You could be susceptible to that. You know what I mean? And I mean, for me in my house, I would have been like, see you later. God bless you. Thanks for dinner. <laughs> you know, I don't need to sit here and expo- have my wife exposed to this. Anyway, you know, see how crazy. I've got to go back to UNT. That's, a, that's the whole, that's what that means. I hope you hear my heart today, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Father, oh Lord, we understand that we live in perilous times. If we don't see that and if we don't feel that, if we genuinely do not perceive that we are living in what the Bible calls perilous times, then our eyes are shut. And we don't want to see it. We don't want to see the world for what it is. But if we have eyes to see, if we look at things the way you do, then we understand that there's spiritual danger at every turn. We need to be oh so careful, and we need to be oh so equipped so that we can be discerning and protect and guard ourselves from the deception that is of the spirit of any Christ. We thank you, Lord, that over all any Christ, that over all spirits, all messages, all messengers, all letters that are not of God, over all the different means and different vehicles that are used to convey falsehood, that your word triumphs over all of it. And that with your word and by your word, we can be instructed and have discernment. We are taught. Thank you, Lord. Bless us with this great discernment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.